CJSW's funding drive is on right now. Head over to CJSW.com to show your support for this program. CJSW 90.9 FM, your beacon radio. Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer, Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer, Cody Dronick. Our show airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. This month, I chat with Lori Hannell and Denis Ellis-Bichard, and co-host Lynn Cadence interviews Tyler Perry and Joan Shillington. Lori Hannell is the author of the novels Love Minus Zero and After You've Gone, as well as a story collection, Nothing Sacred, which was shortlisted for an Alberta Literary Award. Her new collection of short fiction, Vermin, has just been published by Great Plains Publications. Lori will launch Vermin at a Facebook Live event on October 22nd at 6 p.m., hosted by Owl's Nest Books and Great Plains Publications. Lori Hamill, welcome to CGSW Writer's Block. Thank you very much, Tiffany. I'm so happy to be here. You are here with this fabulous and intriguing new book of short stories published by Great Plains um, called Vermin. Can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of, of what they'd find if they dip into these stories? Um, they're going to find a fairly wide variety of um, stories and uh, subject matter here. Um, these are stories that uh, have been um, written mostly since my last collection was published in 2009. Uh, so they have been written over a long period of time. We've got some uh, historical pieces here. Uh, we've got a few kind of, I like to think, humorous pieces. Um, we have some, you know, fairly serious uh, contemporary stories as well. And, uh, yeah, we have some flash fiction, too. So there's a, a pretty wide variety of stuff. I, I really uh, enjoyed reading it, partly, I guess, as a woman. I was, uh, I, I loved, it really resonated for me to have so many of the stories told from the point of view of women, all kinds of women, women in different par- periods of their life. Um, was that deliberate or do you just go there? I mean, I, I think there's a little bit of just going there and uh, a deliberate desire to tell, in the case of the historical stories anyway, um, like there are several historical stories that involve uh, real life people. There's a story about uh, Tom Thompson and his girlfriend. Um, there's a story about um, Big Spiderbeck, the jazz musician, and his girlfriend. Um, and in stories like that, I I wanted to look at the impact that these people's lives had on their partners, uh, the women they were with. I think those stories are so often neglected or not told, and I feel like you know they're an important part of history too. So. I, I like to look at how uh, how women uh, kind of impact and interact with their partners, I guess. Yeah, and, and it was done in such a compelling way. There's also Chopin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, and um, I found myself, you know, I was reading them late at night, but I was like, oh, I want to get up and, like, look. look did, did Tom Thompson really have a pregnant girlfriend? What? Well, <laughs> he How come he I did. did not know this? He actually did. Um, there's a great book written by uh, the journalist Roy McGregor, um, and I did, the title escapes me right at this moment. I think it's called uh, Canoe Lake. Actually, a novel that he wrote, and he's also written two nonfiction titles about Thompson. He is a descendant of Thompson's girlfriend. And, oh. you know, I, I won't say too much, but apparently he did have a pregnant girlfriend uh, when he died. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. 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 It's, so har- it's really such a heartbreaking story. I, I think you don't shy away from how a lot of times uh, men really rely on 
these women to, you know, keep keep everything together for them. And, well, uh, in, in some cases, they rely on women to just be able to function, you know, much less uh, be able to perform their art or do their jobs or whatever it is. So, so yeah, I think um, women's roles in these guys' lives really... <laughs> You know, they, they couldn't be more important, I guess. No, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's so... that That's the power of story again, right? You're giving us these little glimpses that... And now the reader will never look at another Tom Thompson book the same way again or, or think about Chopin when, when they're hearing Chopin. Or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, a lot of these stories also are about, as John Lennon would, would sing, working class heroes, people wrestling with, with coming to terms with, with bitter truths almost, you know, and finding a certain kind of redemption in their survival. What draws you to that particular theme? Um, I mean, it's, it's partly, I guess, um, you know, my family, uh, you know, my parents and grandparents were very much working class people. It's it's where I come from. And, um, you know, some of the work that I've done in my life uh, has, I don't know, kind of immersed me in the world of people who maybe, uh, how to put it, um, are, are a little bit down on their luck. Um, I had two jobs in particular, um, one working at uh, interfaith thrift stores uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s. And also, at the same time, I was working at uh, Calgary Public Library. Um, so working at the downtown library and working at a thrift store downtown, I got to see a lot of people who were, you know, homeless or the next best thing, people who were, uh, you know, struggling with addictions, um, struggling with mental illness. And I, at an early age, I developed a, you know, pretty pretty strong empathy for, for these kinds of people who I think by and large are kind of forgotten about uh, or maybe put aside uh, by the the larger society. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel a, you know, a need to write about them. I do. Mm-hmm. With a really deep respect. Thank you for that. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm glad it comes out that way. Yeah, I, I felt that affection and respect and and showing us that it's not something to look away from. I think these people's stories are, you know, the stories in the book are all about people who have uh, such sparkles and, and glimmer and, and uh, that's important to not just typecast in one category or another, right? I, I'm really glad that you, you know, perceive that in the stories, Dimsy, because I'm never, you know how it is as a writer, you're never really sure how your stuff comes off, but I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was uh, remarkably, be- beautifully done. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about music, too, because I know um, from other works of yours that I've read and and a little the little bit that I know about you as a fellow writer in Calgary, um, that you were were in the music world yourself at one time. And I, I see that also coming back in various ways in, in your work. Yeah, I mean, it's it was a so I was a member of a punk band called the Virgins um, from the time I was well, let's say sixteen uh, to about twenty one, and uh, we were a bar band. We played around Calgary. We didn't ever tour or anything like that. And really, it was part of my life for let's say five years at the most. But you know, it was at a kind of a crucial time in my my formative years, I guess. Um, it's just something that that experience I think will be with me forever and I'm compelled to write about maybe not that specific experience but I'm compelled to look at um, music and the music industry um, quite often in my work so for better or for worse right I mean um, that experience just kind of set me off on that course right yeah and it's 
struck me that some of the kind of down on their luck characters are also the people that intersect with that world. You know, to make your way as a musician is no easy thing. And you may not always be the person living in the shiny condo um, if you choose that path. Right. And even if you're um, not necessarily from a, you know, blue collar background yourself, I mean, playing these dives downtown, you certainly get to see a um, colorful side of life, right? So yeah. Those characters, again, are, are people that I think about often, and uh, I'm compelled to write about them. Well, I'm glad people do. Their stories need to be sung. Oh, thanks. So now we're in month seven of this crazy thing called a global pandemic. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm curious about, and you know, you and I are in our homes talking to each other because we can't be in the studio still. Yeah. And and so I'm, I'm curious about what it's been like for you to write in the time of COVID, but also now to la- be launching a book in the time of COVID. Well, um, let's just say it's very, very strange. <laughs> the whole thing is very, very strange. You know, in some ways, having having to be at home has sort of forced me to concentrate on my writing. So um, um, I had to finish, I had a deadline to finish um, a first draft of a book. I was fortunate enough to get uh, funding to finish the first draft, and uh, I had to finish it by uh, the end of July this year. And so it was great for me to actually have that project to work on and have a deadline, uh, you know, for finishing it. Because I think otherwise it would have just been so easy to concentrate on the news and concentrate on, you know, all of the bizarre things that are going on around the um, the pandemic, um, you know, as well as politics. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mean, if I had just been sitting there telling myself, okay, Laurie, I'd like to finish this first draft sometime, I think it might have been tricky. It might have been tricky. And uh, as far as the book launch thing goes, um, wow, it's pretty crazy. This book, Vermin, um, actually, I got the acceptance uh, for it from the publisher at the end of February. And of course, at that time, you know, that the word pandemic was being kind of bandied around in the press, but nobody was really taking it very seriously. Uh-huh, and yeah. and I, I was planning a big book launch at C-Space and, you know, all excited about that. I mean, you know, I like book launches. They're fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then all of a sudden we were scaling things back. And then all of a sudden it was like, you're going to have to have a virtual launch. And I thought, oh, God, no, you're kidding. Like, that's a disaster. But, you know, actually, now that I have been to several um, virtual book launches uh, and seeing actually how well people are handling them, I mean, the first few I went to were a little awkward, i got to say. But people are figuring it out. And, you know, really, I think that, it's not exactly an advantage to us to do these things online, but I think in the future when we're when we're able to have book launches in person, I think we should be incorporating these digital um, performances as well. Um, this kind of technology has been around for you know a little while now, and and really it's something I think writers should have been embracing all along. It helps us to um, access a much wider audience of people for one thing than a mm-hmm. traditional book launch does. I mean, when you think about it, a traditional book launch in Calgary would be, you know, however many of your family and friends you could guilt into coming out to your event and, <laughs> and, and people from the writing community. But, I mean, now, theoretically, you have access to, you know, the whole world with, yeah. these, with these digital events. Now, I don't know what it really means in terms of book sales. I mean, are you talking about, you know, a, a hugely expanded number of book sales because of this digital outreach? I'm not sure. But, you know, I guess that is something we're going to be finding out later. So, I mean, yeah, it's kind of weird and it is um, something we haven't done before. But it is what it is, as Trump says, and... uh 
I think we just have to make the best of it. Yeah, yeah. As always, art adapts, right? (laughs) Absolutely, we have to. Lori Hannell, you have just been named the new author-in-residence for the Calgary Public Library. Yes, that's right, Anthony. I'm very excited to be serving in the position this year. And I am the pandemic author-in-residence, as we know. Uh, So that means that um, everything is online at the moment. Um, Again, um, you know, I got the job at the end of August, and we were looking at perhaps having in-person consults at that time. Uh, because of the rise in cases uh, that we have seen lately in Alberta, we are backing off on that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we may decide to rethink it, um, although having said that, uh, the residency is not that long this year. We're only going until November 27th. So I feel like it's probably unlikely that we'll be doing anything in person, but, you know, we're doing it. Um, so we are having... Um, Three programs. We've already did, done the first program last week, and it went quite well. We have two more programs coming up uh, in November, and I'm open for business for uh, consults. So if people want to book uh, an appointment to talk to me, um, you can do that through the Calgary Public Library website, and you can also send me um, up to 10 double-spaced pages of your work to read if you would like that, uh, free of charge. Um, so if you go to Calgary Public Library's website and just uh, search for author and residence, um, there will be a page there with all the information you need to book a consult with me or sign up for a program. Well, that's wonderful, and I know you've done a ton of teaching and are very highly regarded, so anyone who takes the time to uh, work with you is going to get a lot out of it. Lori, thank you so much for coming on Writer's Block and and telling us about Vermin. Thank you so much for having me, Daphne. It's been great to chat about the book with you. Denis Ellis Bichard is the author of eight books of fiction and nonfiction and the winner of the 2007 Commonwealth Writers' Prize for the Best First Book, the 2016 Midwest Book Award for Literary Fiction, and 2015 Nautilus Book Award for Investigative Journalism. His writing has been nominated for a Canadian National Magazine Award and featured in Best Canadian Essays, and his photojournalism has been exhibited in the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. His articles, fiction, and photos have been published in dozens of prestigious international newspapers and magazines, and he has reported from all around the world. Denis Elise Bouchard, welcome to Writer's Block. Hi, thank you. You're here today with your latest work, uh, A Song from Far Away. Could you give our listeners just a little bit of a taste of what this story is about? It's a tricky story to summarize neatly. Um, It takes place over about 150 years and is basically the story of a family, but a family that's spread out across North America and that has, you know, very loose ties. Each of the family members have loose, loose ties to each other. So it starts in, um, you know, in the early 2000s with two, uh, two, two half-brothers, one who grew up in the United States, one who grew up in Canada, who both have the same father. And they are, in a sense, competing for a sense of who has ownership of their father's story and their father's affection after their father dies. And one of them finds a book in his father's um, belongings that is written in Spanish and that tells the story of this, um, this uh, man during the, Span- during the Mexican Revolution, this sort of idealistic figure who fights for truth and justice and sort of overcomes his own corruption to be a, a better person. And they try to understand, and the, and the, and the author has the same last name as, as they do, and so they try to understand their relationship to him. And the book traces back through Quebec, through Prince Edward Island, through... Um, the wars overseas, through war, South Af- wars in South Africa and Iraq, to sort of show the links between these two brothers and this military family in the U.S. and 
people all across North America who have sort of contributed to the mythology and the stories of this family. And it's really a book that's about the way that war and the narratives of war and masculinity shape a family, as well as the way that stories are transmitted through art and the way that art um, transforms people's understanding of themselves and their past. It was so uh, epic. Um, it's a little book to hold, but it's so epic, this story, and, and also enigmatic. And it struck me in, in how the stories are separate from one another, but yet then all connect somehow. Um, that the way that you wove those stories and the perspectives of the different characters in the story very much mimics the way that we learn disparate bits of our own family history and then try to puzzle it all together over time. Absolutely. I think I had this sense. So this book has a very, you know, kind of a long backstory, which is that I, I worked on it for 20 years and I kept adding the pieces and taking them away. And, you know, one point it was immense. It was more than twice the size of what it is now. And I was trying to kind of, I guess, explore the sense that history is just not linear. You know, we often read these historical novels that are just so neatly packaged and, 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 and they shine light on every single little question about a family's legacy. And um, they give a sense of this objective historical truth that, <clears throat> that I, 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 you know, that I think is, in a sense, quite artificial. And often when we read history books, you know, historians are more careful, careful about, uh, you know, historians are more careful about articulating the unknowns than fiction writers are often, <laughs> often, you know? And so, and so, and so, um, um, I guess what I wanted to get at with the book was the sense that we don't have a very clear sense of our past and we're constantly constructing it. And so I wanted to create these sort of pools of light in the past where somebody has a perspective on the future and on the past and is trying to understand where they are. And then I, I imagine it as, you know, you're walking a path at night and you look back and you see a bunch of lampposts along this path and you can see these, these pools of light um, stretching into the distance. And there's just a lot of unknown between each one. And um, I think that's how I imagine, um, that's how I imagine a more honest construction of history. And I think, you know, one of the things I was really trying to get at was a sense of the degree to which um, our understanding of the past, of the past is a fiction that, um, that, that is convenient to us. You know, I guess that's what I want to say that we have these fictions that help us make sense of the present and the stories trying to explore the origins of those fictions. Right. Yeah. The stories we tell ourselves to put it into some sort of linear logic. <laughs> yeah. When I was thinking about the themes of this book, uh, I really felt like, you know, if I had to sum it up, it, 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 it's really about intergenerational trauma and the decisions that we make gener one generation to the next because of how life has cut us. Yeah, and that's, that's very true. And, 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 I, and when the earlier versions of the book, when I was working on it, I was thinking a lot about the ways that people use art to metabolize trauma, to, to, to channel it, to even just contain the pain of it. Or, you know, people often aren't saying, oh, I'm going to do art because it's going to allow me to understand this in a way that I could articulate. It's more just a reaction and, and, a, and, and a soothing. You know, a person can play music or dance or write, and it, and it sort of soothes, soothes that, that, that restlessness or that unease um, that's in the body that can't always be explained. And so the book was very much about people using art in ways to respond to these traumatic events, which often emerge from war, or if not just from war, but from nationalism or, um, I would say, just, just violence, really. You know, that's, the book is, is centered to a large degree around male violence and the violence passed down between fathers and sons. And the violence also inflicted on the women around them. Um, 
and so I was trying to explore, you know, the way that people understand that trauma. But then what I found was that, you know, we have this very positive sense of artistic expression, but artistic expression can also become the voice of nationalism. It can become the, the art that celebrates war and perpetuates it. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. sort of, you know, gives a form to these violent myths and makes it easier for people to carry them, those myths down for the generations. And so the book was really looking at both of those different expressions um, of art and the different reactions to violence. It also struck me, you know, you unflinchingly explore the disappointing father figure, the, the inarticulate men who try to figure out their hurt but can't quite, the disappointed women, you know, who carry too much responsibility. But also, each of those situations had all these elements of empathy, and it made me think that, again, that story does help us feel that empathy toward imperfect humans or characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that, that, that is true. And I think it's easier to understand um, what can seem like very simple decisions from the outside if we, you know, we have the time to be with the character. Um, and, and I've always had a bit of a fascination with characters that might be perceived very negatively um, on a cultural level in the sense that, you know, so, I mean, I, as you, as you know, from one of my previous books, I was raised by someone who was quite violent, who was a bank robber. You know, my, my memoir, Cures for Hunger, was about my father and um, growing up with someone who had committed a lot of crimes. And I sort of became fascinated with the sense of, with making sense of how, do we humanize these people? How do we understand them? And I think that increasingly I see a lot of literature and a lot of cinema moving more towards, you know, I guess a glorification of positive people, maybe more victim narratives, sort of look at the person who's victimized and, and sort of focus on their innocence and their goodness. And there's less energy spent trying to understand what makes us violent or what makes us do, um, you know, go to war or do um, horrific things. And um, I think that for me, I'm I'm always concerned about narratives that that sort of become triumphalist, you know, in announcing our goodness, because I Mm -hmm. think that, that, that the flip side of that is violence, because the second we begin to think that we're pure or good. Um, we have a sort of moral righteousness that arises that mm-hmm. allows us to view ourselves as superior to others. Um, and so I've always been very interested in understanding, you know, where, you know, what causes people to go to war or hate each other or commit horrible acts of violence against each other. And the book tries to explore that. Um, you know, not gratuitously by any means, but by following the lives of people who have, um, you know, who have a pain or, or, or who have a wound that they can't find a way to understand and that eventually leads them to, um, to isolate themselves or harm others or participate in, in war in a way that, that um, is ultimately, you know, destructive to them themselves. Yeah, destruction, destructive on so many levels. And I think the truth of it is that we're all flawed and we all have the capacity to hurt. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that is, yeah, I think, I think the more that, that, um, as a writer, I find that I can stay close to that sense of the human capacity to simultaneously create beauty and enact violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do the two often nearly simultaneously, um, 
I think that that's sort of, you know, that's one of the, the I guess, the mysteries of, of being human that I find so fascinating. And, you know, to live with ourselves, we often find ways to, to, to deny the violence or to blind mm-hmm. ourselves to it. Um, and yet I think, you know, most people, um, I've never lived in someone else's, uh, you know, body and mind. <laughs> I can't say truthfully, but I really think that all people have that, that, that capacity for violence and beauty. And, and the book is trying to, in a sense, you know, to, to look at the ways that, um, that we express that both as, as you know, on an individual level and in a level. One of the things that made me think about was that that is also reflective of the life that you've been able to live. In many ways, your literary career has been defined by your your um, life as a journalist, where you've, I think, traveled to 60 countries and had all kinds of incredible adventures. So I'm also curious how this pandemic that we're all navigating um, has affected you, you, you as an artist and what you think the future holds now that we've kind of redefined the world. Oh, that's a great question. I, um, I, I think I'd say we're, you know, looking at 2020, we're at a point where it's very hard to know what the future holds. Um, you know, there's so many, so many things can go in multiple directions. You know, the the, the rise of right wing ideologies. The I'd say the grasping for simple answers um, and the inability to dialogue, the inability to see that there could be a middle ground. All these things are absolutely terrifying, and I I think are symptomatic of a larger culture that. Um, on both sides of the political spectrum has increasingly trafficked in simplistic rhetoric mm-hmm. and, you know, ideologies rooted in simple solutions. Um, and ideologies that, 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 that present themselves as, as working um, so long as you negate the views of the other half of the population yeah. that doesn't agree with those. And so um, I, I would say that that at the moment, um, as an artist, I'm thinking more and more about the future, how we imagine the future, how we write about the future, um, the ways we see ourselves in relationship to science and technology in the future. And I'd say my, my work is, is, is moving more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on a personal level, I spent a lot of time you know, I, I worked in war zones. I did a lot of journalism overseas, and one to mostly I really wanted to understand what was happening around the world um, firsthand and, and get a better grasp of how to talk about really complex um, situations. You know, how to talk about war. You know, and uh, colonialism, neo-colonialism, in ways that I thought um, would reach. You know, the would would I guess. Uh, grasp the, compl- the, the true complexity of the situations, and I, I would say that now with the pandemic, with uh, with Trump, with the rise of so many extremist movements, um, I think there's a greater need than ever before of trying to create complex narratives. But there's also much less space for them in the broader cultural conversation. There's just not a lot of room for, uh, I would say, books in general, even um, in the culture and. Uh, so it's hard. It's very challenging to figure out what the path forward is and how to address a lot of these questions. But I'm certainly thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to seeing how that manifests into your next work. And in the meantime, um, very grateful for a song from far away and for your time today on Writer's Block. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, your having invited me to, 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 to participate and for all the great questions. Thank you. Calgary poet Joan Shillington's work has been published in numerous literary magazines and anthologies. 
her first collection of poetry, Revolutions, published by Leaf Press in 2008, is about Tsar Nicholas II, his family and their demise. Folding the Wilderness Within, published by Frontenac House in 2014, was shortlisted for the City of Calgary W.O. Mitchell Prize in 2015. Joan has worked as poetry editor, written reviews, and conducted interviews for Freefall magazine, and she has been a guest poet at the Calgary Public Library. Here's co-host Lynn Cadence chatting with Joan. I've just finished reading your new poetry collection, Let This Lake Remember, and I'm eager to hear more about your work. So first of all, the lake mentioned in the title is Lake Wabaman. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Wabaman, that's right. Yeah, and it's west of Edmonton. Tell me, when did you spend time there? Um, Probably from the middle 50s to the late 60s when I was 16. So those 10, 11 years is when I spent most of my time there. What was it like? (laughs) Well, um, for the first few years, until I reached junior high or high school, it was fine. And then, of course, I wanted to be with friends, and I wanted to go to football games and basketball games and dances and stuff. But every weekend, we went out to the lake. Um, but it was good in one way, and that my father let me have total freedom. But in another way, total freedom in the fact that I could take the skidoo out whenever I wanted. He taught me to drive the trucks, any kind of trucks. And uh, I could go to the store. I could take the boat out, go wherever I wanted to on it. I wandered in the bush for hours by myself. And, um, yeah, so that was great. It It was a great experience. During the high school years, I did resent it. A, a lot, actually. However, in another way, I'm not a person to rebel. So I never really rebelled. And there was a part of me that liked the seclusion, that didn't mind the seclusion of reading all those weekends, being with adults, um, having that freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the book is for Phil Brochu, your father. Yes. Uh, who was alive from November 29th, 1917 to January 15, 1998. Mm-hmm. While there are a few poems about your mother, most are about your father. And your father is amazing. He flies planes, he captains boats, he takes you on wild adventures, teaches you to drive, uh, he takes you out on the trap lines, secret midnight boat trips. He's quite a guy. So tell me about him. He is. Tell me about him. Why was he such an important figure in your life? Um, I was the youngest of four children, but I was the youngest by a long shot. My brother that's nearest to me was seven years older than me. So I was alone with my mom and dad really a lot. And they had their problems. They definitely had their problems. And by the time I got to high school, I knew that they stayed together for me. So he was a bush pilot at first. That's how he started flying. He was a bush pilot. And he would go up north. He would, they would drop him at a downed plane. He would stay there in minus 35, 40 below weather. He'd fix the plane because he was also an airplane mechanic, and he'd fly it out. He liked to skirt the law. He, he thought that if he wanted to do something, why shouldn't he? So a lot of the stuff that he did was very, it was quite illegal. I mean, he made moonshine, and he didn't sell it, but he served it to all his friends and everything. It was very potent. Um, He shot animals out of season and snuck them into the city under tarps. And when we went on our midnight excursions, that was totally illegal. He should not have been doing it, fishing off the reservation, totally illegal stuff. So in a lot of ways, I was kind of scared a lot of the time, too, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yeah, yeah. some of that comes through in some of the poems. So tell me, why did you write this book? What do, what do you hope that people will take from it? I hope that they take away the beauty of another era, the simplicity of it in 
so many ways. There weren't lots of choices, but it was a simple era. But it was also filled with fears of the Cold War. And the men talked about war a lot, just like we talk about the pandemic, and there's that underlying fear. Mm-hmm. I grew up in, under the umbrella of the Second World War, so I know now with the pandemic, I can actually kind of relate to what my parents must have felt during the, real, the Second World War, right? Yeah. Um, and that every generation has something usually. I mean, my generation, the baby boomers, have been very, very lucky. And even with the pandemic, this is the first real thing that we've gone through. We've been lucky compared to our our parents and and grandparents who went through wars. That's a very yeah. Good so point. I hope they take yeah. that away, and mm-hmm. I hope they take away the the beauty of family, no matter what the problems are, because we're all just individuals trying to make our way. You know, it took me a long time to recognize that. But I do now. And some days I think, you know, Dad, I get why you were like that. I get it. Yeah. Right? I yes. get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, put, it, always, it always takes a long time to get it. Yeah. So yeah. what's the one question you would like for me to ask you about this book? Oh, that's um, that's an odd thing. Okay. How are all the books connected? Ah, Okay. Good like, question. How are would... all your books connected? <laughs> I, can see, um, I can see a few connections right off the yeah. top, and certainly family is one of those things. Yeah. But tell me, what, what are the connections between your books? Okay, I always, when I started writing Revolutions, I was obsessed with Russia and Nicholas and just focused on their family because my mom had told me about it and I had read the book Nicholas and Alexandra and it wasn't until after I really started was into folding the wilderness within writing it that I realized that the czar was my dad he had he had these qualities of power and um my dad was a very powerful man. He, you didn't argue with him. You just didn't. And yet he could be kind of cruel. He did not love his family the way Nicholas kind of loved his family. And so I saw the differences and I saw the similarities between the two. And then after folding the wilderness within, I think I just got into my dad and what I've learned from my dad, the good, the bad, and all that kind of stuff. So the three of them are very intimately um, um, connected. Yeah, I, I think. And I look at my dad when I have that last poem about my dad and how he walked along Kingsway Avenue. And it just, that was like a czar, you know. He He was... Very powerful, very powerful man. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what poem did you choose to read? Well, I chose to read Fly Fishing. Um, I liked it because it was one of the times when we would go camping east of Edmonton or west of Edmonton at the Burling River, and it would just be my mom and my dad and I, and he would teach me how to fly fish. Would you like me to read it now? Yes, please. Okay. Fly fishing. At dusk beside the Bow River, I watch a man fish in thin light. Stones wobble, undertow tugs him. The year I turned eight, Dad, in hip waders, plaid sleeves rolled to the elbows, piggybacks me across the Burling River, body braced against waist-high rapids. On the opposite bank, I slide off. He hands me a small rod. My cast sit stiff and jerky, spool too free. Clear line tangles in bush and rock. My father casts his fly on breath's arc, face bristled, sun bronzed, every muscle loose. 
Shadows music light in an easy breeze. When a trout hooks, he works tension and fish, jaw set. Water and sun scale the flash. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Lynn. It was a pleasure talking to you, too. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tyler B. Perry is a Calgary poet and high school English teacher. He is one of the organizers of Can You Hear Me Now? the Alberta Provincial Junior High and High School Poetry Slam and has performed his poetry to audiences across Canada and as far away as Japan. He is the author of two previous collections of poetry, Lessons in Falling, published by Bee House Publications in 2010, and Belly Full of Rocks, published by Udakan Books in 2016. He holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia. Tyler B. Perry, your new poetry collection, Plausible Wrong Answers, is what I'd say is a startling collection that includes an introduction to distractor poems, a short piece on the problems of poetry tests, followed by, of course, poetry tests, in which the answers are provided for the first 20 questions and not for the other 17 plus some beautiful, quirky illustrations by Anna Navarro. So, you are a poet, a high school English teacher, and one of the organizers of Can You Hear Me Now? The Alberta Provincial Junior High and High School Poetry Slam. Perhaps I shouldn't be so totally surprised about this book, but it is unusual. So let me start by asking you, what is this book, and how did it come into being? (laughs) <laughs> Good question. What is it? <laughs> um, well, it is, in some ways, it's a, a po- it's, it started out as a reaction to multiple choice reading comprehension tests, really. Um, and I, I explained this a little bit in the, the introductory piece that you mentioned. Um, basically, I had a situation in which I was new to teaching high school. I had been teaching junior high for quite some time. But I found when I got to high school, there's uh, much more emphasis on this reading comprehension test thing that we had to do. And I was searching for a test to give to my students, and I could only find the questions. I couldn't find the actual poems to go with them. And uh, so I had these questions, and I didn't know what to do with them. And I think out of frustration or just to distract myself, I decided, well, maybe I can... uh, see if I can write a poem to go with the question. And um, as ridiculous as that sounds, uh, it actually ended up becoming quite a fruitful writing prompt for myself and um, totally useless for classroom use. I never ended up using it because that's kind of a a silly idea, but it became quite fun. So that it, it became a challenge for me to write a poem that could plausibly relate to the question but which in many ways kind of poked back at the question, um, kind of making the question have to answer itself. Hmm. So it was, uh, yeah, kind of a getting back at, at the test because I feel like these tests can often do a sort of a kind of violence to the poem um, by extracting answers out of it. And this is a chance for a poem to kind of get its revenge on the test. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that's what that's what became what I now call the distractor poems. Uh huh. Yes. Tell us about. Tell me about the distractor <laughs> poem. The- okay. So a distractor poem. Uh, it starts with an epigraph, which is an actual question from a multiple choice reading comprehension test. So that's how the poem starts, and then. Um, the poem is written in response to that question. So quite often uh, in these questions, there will be quotes from the poem. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, uh, in this one poem, there's the hammer. The question is, uh, the detail that serves to emphasize and reinforce the idea of uselessness in Patrick White's poem, not a mine, not a grave, not a hole in the earth, is A, enfeebled as the hand that's forgotten how to use it, on line seven to eight. B, 
Here are some eggs of coal in a sack, line 11. C, there is the hammer with only one claw, line 13. Or D, the wide, rip-toothed, two-handled saw that gripped and... Hello? Um, so tell me about the title, Plausible Wrong Answers. What's important about Plausible Wrong Answers? Tell me about the title, Plausible Wrong Answers. Sure. So uh, one thing about multiple choice questions uh, is that they're, they're designed kind of in a way to um, kind of, well, to put it as one of the epigraphs in in the book by Norman Gronlund, um, the multiple choice item consists of a stem presenting a problem situation and several alternatives, uh, which provide possible solutions to the problem. Uh, these alternatives include the correct answer and several plausible wrong answers mm -hmm. called distractors. And so I think for me, when I'm reading poetry, some of the most interesting, uh, reading experiences are when I don't really know what the answer is and instead I just have questions, right? So mm. poems that raise questions in me as a reader are the ones I find most interesting. And so uh, I would think, well, I'm not really too worried about if my answers are correct or not. It's the plausibility that I'm interested in. And uh, so I thought, when you think about it, any answer that you could give for a poem could be a plausible yet wrong answer. And so I thought I'd toy with that idea of plausibility in the poems that I was writing um, and kind of trying to evade the element of an answer mm -hmm. and rather just sort of dwell on, dwell on that question and plausibility. Right, because the one of the most intimidating things about reading a poem is if you are expected to have the right answers about the poem, yes. which, as you describe, shuts down your experience of the poem, poem, narrows it in. It doesn't open it up. Exactly. Yeah. It closes it. It, uh, it limits your reading rather than opening up new possibilities of meaning in the poem. And, and I like to read poems that open up new possibilities of meaning. <laughs> right. And what do you want readers to take away from this yeah. book? So that's one of the things. Well, you know, I want them to have an experience, um, a unique experience with the book of poetry, because I think most readers these days have gone through school and they've all been subjected to this type of test before. Mm -hmm. And so I want them to have this kind of familiar experience that's made new um, through through the way that the multiple choice test is incorporated into the poetry and because it starts out kind of as a normal looking test. Uh, so we have poems and then we have questions about the poems. Um, but then the questions and the answers start to sort of unravel a little bit. And I want a reader to have that experience of unraveling and watching the test unravel mm -hmm. and sort of gain this new sort of power over this type of test and a new sort of power over the reading of poetry, um, which is also why I do have an answer key at the back, but the answers kind of disappear after a certain point in the manuscript. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I just want them to engage with poetry and with this type of test in a way that doesn't destroy poetry for them, because I think these kinds of tests actually can ruin poetry for a lot of people if it's their only exposure to poetry. Right. Your final test question, or concluding poem, or essay on how to read a poem, number 37. Tell me about this one and read a few bits from it. Sure. Okay, great. Um, so this piece is sort of speaking to the ways in which we try to tell our students um, kind of how to read. And it, it starts by sort of giving 
instructions on on how how to read poetry, and then it sort of starts to become unraveled. So I'll read a little bit of it. Great. Number 37. Number 37. Of the following options, the method of reading poetry that allows readers to most fully comprehend a poem and which adds most value to the reading experience is to A, read the poem silently, B, read the poem aloud, C, read the poem silently while underlining passages, circling unfamiliar words, and jotting down questions and comments in the margins. And these are quite often tips that we'll give our students, you know, um, telling them how to how to read a poem, how to take notes for themselves, and this sort of thing. Uh, and then as we go down into the options, we have uh, some other advice that kind of, um, I guess, takes it in a different direction and starts to unravel a little bit. So here's some of those. C. Swallow the poem. Let the poem move inside you. The poem morphs the moment the first letter of the first word splashes the liquid window of your eyes, funnels your ears, sinks into your brain, cleaves to the nearest memory of experience, becomes experience itself. D. Crash the poem against the inside of your skull. Let it break against your rock cliff assumptions. Froth your spume-filled lungs. Rise to the back of your throat. Leak from your eyes. Overwhelm your language. Drown the words you want to write. And it continues to spin off like that, going back and forth from A to D to C to B, uh, until we get to the last page. A. Interrogate the poem. Throw the poem to the wall. See if it bounces or cracks. Search for contradictions. Weigh the poem against itself. Make the poem chase its shadow. Hold its head underwater. Ask impossible questions. Be uncertain of the answers. C. Slouch in the margins of the poem. Sit in the white space. Reject the words. If the poem won't let you in, Loiter on its doorstep, bust down the door. E. Inhabit the poem. Weave yourself into its gossamer thread. Watch the poem crack from its chrysalis. Stretch new wings. Flutter clumsy into light. A. Read the poem again. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. What is it that you love about young people in poetry and performance? Oh, gosh. Well, it's just everything is so fresh um, at that stage in life. Everything is so new. It's like there's this heightened sensitivity to experience. Um, And I always find that, uh, you know, teaching with poetry and and seeing these poetry uh, slam students, especially at the provincial competition, just the the energy and the passion and the emotion that they are filled with is just absolutely exhilarating and exhausting. I'm never as tired as I am at the end of the Can You Hear Me Now Provincial Poetry Slam because it just takes everything out of you uh, to, to fully participate in this, in, in this poetry performance that they do. Um, I just, I love the energy and the freshness of it. And who who is it for? Who is your reader? Who is my reader? Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that my ideal reader is someone who has some experience with poetry, but possibly fell away from it um, in high school, which I think is really common. Uh, quite often, I think we get turned off poetry when we're being told uh, how to think, how to read it, how to think about it, and what or sort of answers to take away from it. So I'd like to think of a reader as someone who's had that experience and is willing to give it a second shot and realize that poetry maybe isn't what they thought it was from these tests that they were forced to do in high school. Right. Well, that was certainly my experience, and and particularly with the that concluding poem that you um, oh, read parts of for us. I'm glad to hear that. 
So thank you very thank you. much for talking to me about your book. And Thanks for having me. And best of luck with plausible wrong answers. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks, Tyler. You have been listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW. This is host Cody Dronick signing off. Thanks for listening.